0: Hello, welcome to Wild and Theology. My name is Will,
1: and I am Kaylee.
0: Today we are talking to um, Sasha Cisco, our second interview with somebody else in the psychedelic community, and to introduce Sasha. They are a non-binary student of ethnopharmacology, an author, podcast host, integration coach, independent researcher, and an advocate for social justice. A decade of academic research within the field of psychedelic sciences led Sasha to become a zealous advocate for indigenous communities, environmental justice, recovery communities, and marginalized populations. Sasha has been recognized by the psychedelic community for their extensive work within the field. Their personal contributions have included constructing unique legal arguments supporting the sacramental use of entheogens, providing quality educational content for the psychedelic community, advocating for exemplary standard of care within psychedelic assisted therapy, and working in tandem with advocates and researchers to expand society's awareness of this growing field of medical research. In 2017, Sasha began their work on their first piece of nonfiction, Graced by Nature, a comprehensive and trauma-informed illustration of the spiritual and therapeutic potential of psilocybin mushrooms, ayahuasca, peyote, iboga, and other entheogens. Plant-based sacraments traditionally utilized for healing purposes within indigenous religious rites. Sasha Sisko uncovers the legal, scientific, and anthropological histories behind these substances while sharing their life-changing stories influenced by their mystical experiences.
1: Spanning over 300 pages and a dozen chapters, the multidisciplinary nonfiction work demystifies the politically charged history of entheogens while reminding its readers of their potential for humankind. Streaming together elements of history, medicine, culture, religion, law, politics, investigative journalism, and social commentary, graced by nature stands to become a seminal piece of psychedelic literature. Feeling morally compelled to publish their book, Sasha understands that these medicines can help lessen the severity of the ongoing crisis in the mental health care industry. Raised on stolen land once inhabited by the Calusa people, Sasha now lives in central Florida where they enjoy hiking nature trails, reading prose, listening to vinyl records, and finding joy in expressing their compassion in all that they do. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. They welcome you to visit their website at ultradelic.com if you'd like to connect. Ultradelic, U-L-T-R-A-D-E-L-I-C.com. Sasha currently welcomes interested parties seeking short and long-term integration coaching as well as consultations with leaders within the psychedelic sphere. You can find Sasha on Twitter at Sasha Sisko spelt S-A-S-H-A, Sasha, and then Cisco, S-I-S-K-O. Patreon, patreon.com slash slash Sasha Sisko. On Instagram at Sasha T Cisco, on Facebook, Sasha T Cisco, or you can buy Graced by Nature on Amazon.
0: Yeah, and we will have all of these links in the description. Yes. Uh, and just to say, buy the book. It yeah, it's really good. We it's great. Uh, we read it for the podcast, and uh, you'll hear some good things about it in the podcast. Yeah, you'll definitely check it out. Yeah. Um. Also. Our last, uh, our last little thing before we actually get into the podcast itself. You can follow us on social media Yay! as well. We are on Twitter and Instagram, Wild and Theology. Same name, same picture. You should be able to find us. We got some posts on both of those now. Yeah. So uh, check us out.
1: Check it out. Thanks. Thank you for being here today.
0: Thank you. So welcome to Wild and Theology. It's good to have you on. Thank you for having me on. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Uh, so firstly, I just wanted to thank you so much for writing this book. Uh, it was exactly the kind of book that I wanted to read, uh, getting into the history of psychedelics, all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's one of those things where you have so much to read that you never get around to the thing. And then it's like, you approached us, you had this book and it was like the perfect thing, talked about the history of psychedelics, especially with the relig- religious freedom. And it was basically like you wrote a hammer of God against almost everything anti theogen. Is is really good. I enjoyed it a lot.
2: I really like that descriptor.
0: Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. So, like I said, like a major theme of your book was really about the fight for religious freedom in regard to theogens. Uh, and we're actually considering naming this podcast A Sincere Practice of Faith, um, which for our listeners is essentially one of the sort of prerequisites one must fulfill to have their First Amendment rights within the United States. That it must be a sincere practice of faith and so one of the biggest things i've learned over the last few years is that for many religious people their belief is far more nuanced than the kind of literalist interpretation that many in our society assume is the case and so many times throughout the book you quote the bible and interpret in the context of our current society for example the environments or the various forms of oppression So, really, we wanted this conversation to be about the nuances of your religious belief and how that relates to entheogens. And so, to begin, in the book you stated that you consider yourself to be a Christian, but you have many beliefs that I think might make people surprised to hear that. So, can you tell us a little bit about what Christianity means to you and how you currently define it for yourself, especially in light of your entheogen use?
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, before we get going, though, I do want to clarify something you said. While while it is true that Christianity has shaped my worldview and even inspired my first mystical experience, I don't quote-unquote identify as a Christian. Okay. My faith okay. is certainly founded upon some Christian tenets and includes Jesus of Nazareth as one of a few central figures, but I don't really agree with many of the ideologies present within modern Christianity. Right. I sort of see myself as somebody who's taken inspiration from various world religions and philosophies, Christianity included. As a transcendentalist, I do believe that institutions have corrupted the purity of individual experience, and that does include uh, what I like to call the Christian industrial complex. If I had to place uh, a sort of label on my faith, I guess it would fall somewhere within the category of, I guess, syncretic Gnostic Christianity, Eh, maybe with a dash of Taoism and Hinduism, but... I don't know. Uh, At the present moment, I have begun efforts to learn more about Buddhism, given its framework as a life path rather than a religion. And that's very appealing to me.
0: Mm -hmm. So what do you kind of mean by that, the difference between uh, a religion and a life path?
2: Well, it's more so a set of, uh, from what I've gathered so far, it's not so much stern warnings about what not to do as gentle advice. Mm -hmm. Also, from what I've gathered, it focuses a lot more on mindfulness than other faiths that I've researched, studied, uh, been a part of. And that's something that I feel is very, uh, very much not present within modern Christian circles, uh, a sense of mindfulness, Mm self-awareness, being aware of what you're actually doing, what you're actually saying. And I feel that everybody could use a little bit of that in their lives.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of like you said, it's modern Christianity can be very focused on, so focused on what not to do that it decreases your awareness of what you actually are doing, if that makes sense.
2: It does, yeah. Mm -hmm. I I feel like a lot of, uh, quote unquote, Christians uh, more so blindly follow their faith than actively question it, think about it, discuss it with others in a in a way that's more than just surface level. Hmm. I don't know. But um, I, I feel like I can better describe my faith by initially explaining what it's not as opposed to what it is because you know, when people say Christian, that conjures certain thoughts, certain ideas. Uh, full disclosure, I do not accept some of the main teachings of Christianity, notably. I do not believe that Jesus was the son of God. I do not okay. believe that he died on the cross for our sins. Uh, he, I do believe he was a real figure who... Was likely crucified. There's good reason to believe so. There are multiple accounts of his life. Right. Um, I, for example, do not believe that Jesus led a life without sin. I do not believe the Earth is only several thousand years old. I do not believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That very well may have been a poetic metaphor that was buried by mistranslations and uh, you know the telephone game. I don't believe that the Garden of Eden was an actual place, but instead a poetic metaphor. I. I don't think that Christianity is the one true religion. There are many ways of encountering God.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And more or less, I see anyone who has sincere faith in a religion and they're actively trying to be a good person. I can't, I can't fault them. And that gets to another point that I really disagree with a lot of the hateful ideologies present within Christianity. But um, to kind of redirect, you know, what do I believe I consider Jesus of Nazareth to be a humanitarian who lived a fairly virtuous life and attempted to inspire others to do the same. Instead of being the Son of God, I believe that Jesus was one of many billion, uh, or rather one of many billions of children of God. He admitted mm-hmm. so himself. Uh, he advocated for He advocated for progressive values, reminding us that we are all obligated to continuously care for the poor, the handicapped, the ill, and the spiritually impoverished, all of whom he humbly and poetically called the least of these. And these are ideals I can support any day. In, in my personal opinion, if one wishes to claim to be a Christian, they have to live up to these teachings and defend the dignity and humanity of each and every one of our neighbors. And that's something that I feel that a lot of Christians do not do. What else do I believe? I, I, It's my belief that every living being who inhabits Earth possesses the image of God within them. And, you know, this phrase, image of God, has been at the center of numerous debates within Christianity over the centuries. It appears within Genesis when God was making Adam. In, uh, in 1894, Leo Tolstoy published a controversial uh, controversial philosophical treatise uh, whose title captured this exact sentiment. Uh, some of you might have heard it before. It's called The Kingdom of God is Within You.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: In my own estimation, the vast majority of the woes within our world stem from our disconnection with this ultimate truth that we are made in the image of God and that God is within each of us. Um, if our society can utilize our free will in tandem with a genuine desire to connect with the divine source of love and understanding, I believe we can positively impact the world and institute a change all the all the changes that we wish to see within the world. I believe that compassion is at the root of all wisdom, and it can afford each of us the inspiration, the drive, and the courage to help make each of these changes possible. Uh, if we leave these sort of things unaddressed, I believe this disconnection from our true selves manifests itself into various forms of what some people might call sin or decay. Uh, poetically speaking, that is. Uh, mm-hmm. It's become increasingly evident with each passing day, uh, with news reports of oppression violence, hatred, and environmental disasters, they're punctuating our daily existences. If we want to go about realizing a vision for a better world, the Bhagavad Gita has some pretty good advice, mm-hmm. in, my, in my opinion. One verse tells us that the humble sages, by virtue of knowledge, see with equal vision a gentle Brahma, a cow, an elephant, a dog, and a dog-eater. One way that you could interpret this verse is that spiritual connection is not just a measure of how often we pray, how many verses we can recite, or the degree to which we share our beliefs in a public forum, but rather that true spiritual connection requires that we treat every living being with the respect and dignity which our Creator afforded us. If we claim to truly appreciate the divine love of God, then We should already know that all those who inhabit earth are sentient beings who deserve to be treated with dignity and love. We're all born of the same spirit, the same breath of God. Only by looking deep within ourselves to find this divine essence can we look outwardly with new eyes and see it within others. After this epiphany, we must be vigilant to convert our hate into compassion, our selfishness into altruism and gratitude, our alienation into fat into fascination our paranoia into paranoia our urge for vengeance into forgiveness and our intolerance into acceptance and all these virtues are needed in our modern world we can't forget that internal change is absolutely meaningless unless it works in tandem with external change Mm -hmm. uh ring a bell anybody integration (laughs) once these once these qualities which we all harbor are activated Positive enduring change can be seen on a global scale. For millennia, God's name has been invoked to justify slavery, misogyny, anti Semitism, genocide, war you name it. In my belief, it was not God who failed in these circumstances. It was men who chose hatred over love because they had the power to do so. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: While it's true that continuous acts of kindness certainly benefit humankind, I believe that. A refusal to rebuke those who defy common ethical standards can only result in the continual perpetuation of hatred. Simply put, anybody can passively sustain the life breath of systems of oppression simply by idly ignoring their existence Mm -hmm. and doing nothing to address them. Uh, One of the reasons I... <laughs> I kind of dig Jesus that he is that he often corrected the errors of his disciples and the Pharisees. He uh, spoke truth to power. Mm-hmm. He cited scripture in ways that were perceived to be uncomfortable, irreverent, non traditional, and even shocking. Uh, I, I like to think sometimes that if Jesus appeared on Fox News, uh, I think he'd be quick to rebuke the internment of Central American refugees by directly quoting the 19th chapter of Le- Leviticus. Uh, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. A foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were once foreigners in Egypt.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to say, like, I, I think that's... Uh, sorry, did I interrupt you as you were about to say something specific? To that? Uh, good. Okay, cool. Uh, I, I was just going to say, like, I, I think the the fact that you quoted Leviticus is is especially poignant because... Anytime I've heard Leviticus, it focuses a lot on the homophobia, for example, and stuff like this, whereas even in these, you know, famous uh, oppressive books of the Bible, there is clearly very progressive values. And it's, you know, one conversation that I've had in my life is that Jesus was a social revolutionary I think you might have mentioned that where the mistake that I, I find a lot of Christians make is trying to think exactly what Jesus thought and not necessarily in the way that Jesus thought in the fact that like you should challenge the oppressive hierarchies or the status quo of the day and not merely just accept things because it's tradition to do so
2: mm, very true uh- You mentioned Leviticus earlier. There are plenty of uh, verses throughout the Old Testament and New Testament as well, especially the the epistles by Paul. A lot of homophobia. Mm. Uh, It's fairly rampant, and that's one of the things that I disagree with as far as um, these things go. And the way I see it, it's uh, just like how uh, there's this one story in, I think it might have been Mark, Maybe John. Anyway, um, Jesus had uh, found this woman in a, a city. She was drawing water from a well. And without the woman talking to Jesus, he had somehow known that um, her husband had, that she was a widow, but she was actively dating somebody else, if I remember the story correctly. And essentially, mm-hmm. he, the way it's described it is that he took that moment to say that um you know, this is improper, you shouldn't be doing this. And while I completely disagree with that, the, I, I see that as Jesus of Nazareth sort of just carrying on the beliefs and customs of the times because that's what was, you know, that's what was common. That's what was, if I'm not mistaken, the law, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so as much as I like to herald him as a progressive figure, he wasn't perfectly progressive. Yeah. Uh, like right. Like I said, he didn't live a blameless life um but the the way i try and i'm not going to say apologize for or ignore but Mm -hmm. or justify i can't deny that those homophobic and otherwise uh dated (laughs) verses are present throughout the bible the Bible is certainly no perfect text. If I was trying to turn somebody on to my faith system, I wouldn't be sharing the Bible. uh, First thing, no, not for sure. (laughs) Um, The the way I feel that a lot of Christians, quote unquote, Christians should move forward with looking at the Bible with a modern lens is to understand that those sorts of ideas were a product of the times um, based on antiquated ideas about what was right and wrong. But getting back to that verse from Leviticus, one of the things that I felt the need to do in my book was that as somebody who was partially raised within the Lutheran faith, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: I was utterly shocked when I learned about just how terribly anti-Semitic Martin Luther was. Like, shockingly so. Um, Mm -hmm. But getting back to that verse from Leviticus, you know, uh, when a foreigner resides in your land, do not mistreat them. While that verse is still fresh in our minds, I have to call attention to Martin Luther's rank anti-Semitism. Some of you might not know this, but I'll break it down for you. Although I can't deny the profound impact which he had on my own life, a large body of his work has to be swiftly condemned. In in his 1543 publication, Get Ready People, The Jews and Their Lies, Martin Luther warned his fellow Christians to, quote, be on your guard against the Jews, knowing that wherever they have their synagogues, nothing is found but a den of devils in which sheer self-glory, conceit, lies, blasphemy, and defaming of God and men are practiced most maliciously and veheming his eyes on them. I shall give you my sincere advice. First, set fire to their synagogues or schools and bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed. Third, I advise that all their books and Talmudic writings in which such idolatry, lies, cursing, and blasphemy are taught be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that their rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. May Christ, our dear Lord, convert them mercifully and preserve us steadfastly and immovably in the knowledge of him, which is eternal life. Good God.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ethnic cleansing, essentially.
2: Yeah. Um... And this was never addressed mm. when I grew up in the faith. Not once. I had to read this stuff on Wikipedia. As much as that sort of stuff just disgusts me to my core, there are writings of Martin Luther that yeah. certainly embody the love and light of God that and it makes it difficult to try and move forward with that. But the way I see it is that I can't abide with or practice within or be associated with any sort of Lutheran framework, if that's their founding father, so to speak, you know, right. In my personal humble opinion, it's our obligation to rebuke those who maintain philosophies of hate. And Mm -hmm. if not, these sorts of memes will continually be passed down throughout the generations, much like genetics, ideas are definitely passed down uh, and have the ability to be mutated. So we have to be ever aware to speak in love, truth, harmony, so that this contagion of hatred can hopefully one day be eliminated. If we want to, f- if we want any substantial change to occur, we have to focus our efforts on passing these values onto our children. Uh, Frederick Douglass once wisely reminded us that it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, seeing that painted on the side of a fence once, and it was just really powerful. I had to stop and look at it for a minute. Um, While physical violence and vitriolic literature are easily identifiable forms of hatred, there's a much more sinister force which invisibly permeates the very foundation of our society. Mm -hmm. Drumroll, please. Yes, we all know. Institutional racism. Mm -hmm. It's poisoned the well of humankind for millennia, and it only serves to benefit those who are willing to casually deny the humanity of others. Our country's painful history with racism haunts our present lives and, in my opinion, cannot be solved unless we're willing to overturn the tables of the proverbial money changers as Jesus did and immediately address what our nation's most privileged have become. A den of robbers. It's the same phrase that Jesus used to describe the money changers in fact he had quoted a verse from Jeremiah while doing that uh, just to give a nod to that Um, Mm -hmm. to this end though uh, the first verse from the 10th chapter of Isaiah warns us woe to those who make unjust laws to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people wow, I can dig that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit.
2: Yeah. Um, One of the figures that I kept bringing up throughout my book was Robert Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Learning more about his life. uh, Well, I incidentally had to learn more about his life because I was researching what happened in the 60s and what have you. And extraordinarily progressive person, truly cared about the plight of the poor and the less fortunate. One of the ways that I tied in his work was that I brought up his uh, speech that he gave to a crowd in Cleveland only a day after Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot. If I'm not mistaken, it was a sort of impromptu speech that he felt compelled to give. While it was true that the nation was shocked by Martin Luther King's assassination, he wanted to solemnly remind the crowd that there is an insidious form of violence which presently exists within our society, which he said, quote, is slower, but just as deadly destructive as the shot or the bomb in the night. Pointing to the racial wealth gap, the underfunding of predominantly Black schools, and the overincarceration of Black citizens, uh, Robert Kennedy openly condemned these shameful standards of our society and described them as, quote, the violence of institutions, indifference, inaction, and decay. He clearly saw the pervasive consequences of institutional racism and reminded the crowd of its many forms, the slow destruction of a child by hunger, and schools without books, and homes without heat in the winter. This is the breaking of a man's spirit by denying him the chance to stand as a father And as a man amongst other men, and though, like I said, the the loss of the civil rights leader disheartened the nation, he wished to remind the crowd that all of us have the ability to recall the fact that, quote, those who live with us are our brothers. An epiphany which could inspire all of us to strive to correct the errors of the past, heal the wounds of inequality, and to live in harmony as we were meant to do. Uh, His words unintentionally echoed the writings of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a French Jesuit priest who, three decades prior, wrote that humanity will one day, quote, harness for God the energies of love, and then for a second time in the history of the world, mankind will have discovered fire. Uh, Terence McKenna liked to quote that. Line a lot, mm. but I kind of redirected it to what Pierre kind of intentionally wanted to say. At least I think. Right. Mm. Any thoughts about that?
1: Wow, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. All of that in-depth reflection on your your religion, I guess your faith.
2: Yeah, I do have a bit more. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> just wanted to stop and get your thoughts if you wanted. Yeah. One of the other things that helped me see Jesus of Nazareth as a progressive figure was that he had a radical message of love and acceptance, which stood in direct opposition to those in power at the time of his life. And if you look carefully, the gospel documents hundreds of philosophical and ethical questions which Mm -hmm. Jesus posed to his disciples, the Pharisees, the crowds. And only a few of these rhetorical questions were ever answered directly these sorts of open-ended questions in my view invite us to find the ultimate truth for ourselves uh the way i like to put it is that he reminded us that the self-made shackles of sin which stifle our every move can be unlocked simply by coming by becoming self-aware he reminded us of the questions which matter most and often posed Them to people in power. Uh, for example, when he was arrested and brought before Pontius Pilate, he asked if Jesus was indeed the king of the Jews. Uh for those who don't know, uh, the Romans were in power at the time in the area, and they did not want to see some sort of figure trying to rise against the Roman government. And Jesus happened to answer in a way which led Pontius to ask himself, quote what is truth <laughs> now a lot of people have debated this over the years whether or not he was being sarcastic or whether he was being sincere but mm. uh say what you will uh after this he a uh, pilot went out told the gathering crowds that he could not find quote a basis for a charge against him. so uh, uh i'm inclined to believe that he was being sincere when he said when he asked yeah. what truth was Jesus reminded us to ask ourselves why we find fault in our neighbor when we fail to see our own faults.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: He asked us why we harbor evil thoughts and why our hearts have become hardened. He even reminded us to ask ourselves who our neighbors are. If Jesus were alive today, my personal opinion, he would be protesting the current mistreatment of minorities, women the less fortunate, and other people across the world who have been forgotten in the modern era. He mm-hmm. would have marched in the streets of the capital to raise awareness about the injustices continually cast upon the black community, the genocide of the Rohingya people of Myanmar, separation of families at the Mexico border, uh, the genocide of the Uyghur people in China, famines in East Africa. And I feel pretty adamant about this. I feel that he would have even protested the persecution of Palestinian citizens by the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. I don't, Jesus would never paint these peaceful process protesters as radicals like many Christians do. In my view, he would be walking arm in arm with those who disagree with the status quo. I think his wisdom would allow him to see that these protests are the byproduct of justifiable frustration felt by millions of our neighbors who face injustice, indignity, violence, and a lack of opportunity on a daily basis. This is not to say that he was without sin, though. Uh, I always love to point out the time that he cursed a fig tree. Days before he overturned the tables at the temple in Jerusalem, he and his disciples happened to be walking on a path where a fig tree was growing. And although it was not the right time of year for the tree to be producing figs, Jesus got frustrated and he cursed the tree, condemning it to never produce fruit again. Uh, they just sort of leave it at that. Then the thing of the temple happens, then they leave mm-hmm. the temple and they come back to the tree and the disciples go, oh, hey, shoot. The tree did actually wither away and die. And the the way that it's wrapped in or weaved in is that uh, I believe Jesus was tying a allegory about the nation of Israel and how this tree represents the nation of Israel, this and that. If you ask me, I think he was just hangry. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, yeah. he was definitely like on a frustration streak. I mean, he overturned the tables at the temple, you know, like something must've been going on. I don't know,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but. That's my take, though. I'd be open hearing the opinions of others. While I'm certain that no mortal human could possibly condemn a tree to death simply by exclaiming so, this tale certainly points to a topic that's often ignored within Christian circles, in my opinion, and that's the concept of environmental stewardship.
0: Hmm.
2: If one wishes to cultivate compassion for all living beings, that would inherently lead one to respect the living Breathing environment which produces our food, water, resources, shelter, and the very air that we breathe. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, humans have uncannily devised a new form of sin, silly monkeys. (laughs) By intentionally polluting our planet and emitting carbon into the atmosphere, we are actively robbing the future from our children. At the present moment, our civilization is witnessing the mass decline of the world's animal population. The melting of all Arctic sea ice, the burning of the Amazon, the mass pollution of the Pacific Ocean, and even the very air that we breathe has become hazardous to our health. The phrase sins of the father has never been so applicable within the history of humankind. Our materialistic fetishism has run amok and somehow allowed us to forget that humans were designated to be stewards of the earth. In fact, that was the very first command given by God to tend to the garden of eden is our planet any less worthy of love than the mythical eden though we've largely ignored this imperative those with the right set of eyes can perceive the inherent sacredness of the planet which all humans call home in 1955 alan Ginsberg poetically reminded us that humans have broke their backs lifting moloch to heaven pavements trees radios tons lifting the city to heaven which exists And is everywhere about us. The Pharisees once asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would arrive. They were curious. They wanted to know. Jesus responded that it was invisible. And it was already, quote, in your midst. That's in Luke chapter 17. Uh, His disciples would ask the same question. And Jesus enigmatically, enigmatically responded that, quote, it will not come by waiting for it. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth and men do not see it. That's within the Gospel of Thomas, which is actually one of the uh, texts which were not included in the standard Protestant or Catholic Bible. I had to go searching for that one. There are a bunch of really interesting texts out there, if you ever want to look around. The same sorts of ones that claim that uh, Jesus was married or that, uh, oh, the Gospel of Judas is an interesting one, too. They actually paint him as a good figure, but that's a whole other thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to say that a thought that came to me when you were talking about uh, environmental justice is I learned this first from reading um, Ken Wilber, if you're aware of him, but he was talking about, he's a he's a philosopher, if you've ever heard of integral theory or the integral stage, anything like that. He's kind of the, the philosopher of that, but he was basically talking about Plato and Plotinus and how they had viewed love for the higher and love for the lower as equally as important. And that through the development of Western culture, the love for the lower essentially was forgotten. And it was only love for the higher love for uh, God above, essentially that we could never achieve because obviously Christ is the only son of God, right? To bring that back to environmental justice the love of the lower is kind of that compassion for the lower animals so to speak or the lower other life forms and this kind of thing that is just as important and is just as much an expression of god's love as love for the higher principles uh, that we would normally associate with religion or christianity this kind of thing and it really is it speaks to what you're talking about is the fact that we have a responsibility to be as compassionate as possible for all of life and all of reality, and always act from that place of compassion. And when there are so clearly examples that you've outlined already of just a lack of compassion, that many of uh, the people that a, a you know, as you say, quote unquote, Christian would idolize, they would never agree with that kind of thinking.
2: It baffles me sometimes. I don't quite mm. get it. But you know that I guess that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book to try and share these beliefs, not just with other people in the psychedelic community, but to a fair portion of the book is actually directed at people who consider themselves to be Christian. know, consider what freedom of religion actually means. Consider mm-hmm. what, consider what your faith is supposed to mean. Are you living up to it? Not to point the finger at anybody. Anytime you do that, you know, you got four fingers, four fingers pointed right back at yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, that's like my pastor used to say growing up uh, just to, cap off what you were saying about environmental stewardship we really have to be self-aware to the extent that we acknowledge that each of our actions has an impact on humankind and the planet that we share the disconnection between humankind and the living breathing creation that we call earth is unfortunately a tragic product of the of what i consider to be a capitalist mindset which places profit and power over the needs of the less fortunate in the environment That sort of weaves into another belief of mine that humankind is often capable but unwilling to better the conditions of the less fortunate. I know it's a grim fact, but it needs to be more well-known. Each and every single day, thousands of innocent children across the world perish from starvation, attributable to famines, poverty, local military conflicts, natural disasters. Meanwhile, developed nations, such as ours, uh, spend trillions of dollars to manufacture arms, bombs, munitions. In fact, if you look at the statistics, the United States spends more money on our military than the next, I believe, 10 world powers combined. It's absolutely absurd. The United Nations recently got together to estimate how much money would be needed to effectively and the scourge of starvation across the world. $30 billion is what they estimated. Now, this figure represents less than 5%. 5% of our annual military budget. Not overall budget, just the military budget. I believe that we have, or at least our country, has the opportunity to be that shining city on the hill which mm-hmm. Presidents Reagan and Kennedy dreamed of, but we're falling short of it. If our nation has the ability to end world hunger, then why do we suffer from inaction? Have we chosen hate over love? Have our hearts become hardened? There's a really powerful Mother Teresa quote that I'm reminded of. And she claimed that when poverty stricken people succumb to starvation, it was not God who failed. She said that it has happened because neither you nor I wanted to give that person what they needed. Um, there are other Verses throughout the New Testament that echo this same idea. Reading from 1 John chapter 3. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's um, It's a pretty powerful verse. It's one that mm-hmm. still resonates with me. We have to remember that humankind belongs to earth and that we are all connected in this web of living beings and whatever harm we place upon earth will be repaid tenfold. We have to turn our lethargy and apathy into mobilization and empathy. If we wish to avert our society's eventual self-destruction, I, I see it coming all the time. Mm-hmm. If If we can't follow, if we can't, live more compassionate lives our civilization will be confronted with a grim destiny of its own making uh some people say that you know god will one day rain down fire and terror upon the earth uh that very well might be us folks Mm
0: -hmm.
2: a lot of people have difficulty trying to figure out you know what all this means to them you know how to integrate their faith into their lives, into their actions, their thoughts, and you know what to make of all these sorts of woes that our society faces. Some might say that it's our civil responsibility to give our whole self, to make a steadfast commitment to confront the rejection of humanity embodied by the modern world and upend all these systems of oppression. In my opinion, we all need to stand up and be counted to decide our place, as the poet James Russell Lowell once described as being, quote, in the strife of truth with falsehood. This was a a portion of a poem published in December of 1845. It was a a long-form poem which had condemned slavery and an impending war with Mexico. It was actually a poem which Martin Luther King Jr. actually quoted in his We Shall Overcome speech. Uh, Lowell added in his poem that to side with truth is noble and that it is the brave one who chooses while the coward stands aside. The real question remains, though, what is truth? I submit that what brief time we've been afforded on planet Earth should be well spent lifting one's mind to heaven so as to recognize the divine spark which all of us carry deep within us. During our fleeting existence, if one listens close to the sound of the wind, looks deep into the outer reaches of space, or feels the joy that comes with a tender embrace, we can all hear the call of our creator insisting that we live in harmony with each other. Whether we choose to do so by making a series of acts of kindness towards our fellow human beings, or by devoting our lives towards building a human utopia, we all bear the shared responsibility. The present moment is all there is, folks. Resolve to change oneself and the world for the better now, not tomorrow now. Mm-hmm. In Buddhist tradition, the, some of those who are on the life uh, some of those who are on the path towards enlightenment are considered to be Bodhisattvas. Such life paths have been traditionally associated with the desire to express compassion for all sentient beings and to help substitute the suffering which others feel for bliss by actively manifesting our goodwill, understanding that the suffering of others is ours too, expressing joy for others, and keeping a sense of equanimity, the four immeasurable, the four immeasurable virtues, folks, <laughs> we can rise above our differences, see every human as a true neighbor, and collectively raise our children within an inclusive world which actively fights injustice. If one believes in the ideals of equity and freedom, then one must stand for a world we can all believe in. Once we surrender to this divine plan of compassion for all living beings, there is no limit. To how we can utilize our God-given intellect towards actualizing a world in which we all wish to live. Does that answer your question?
1: (laughs) Yes, very thoroughly.
0: So just as a I guess a statement of agreement to put it, Mm -hmm. is that about the bodhisattva vow, that really is what I was kind of talking about before, where it's it's you know, being the most spiritual person is not going into a cave for the rest of your life and and meditating. It really is returning and and sharing the insights to make the world better. That's part of it. And it it comes back to that love of the higher where you, okay, love of the higher is meditating a cave to find God, but it's also love for the lower. It's returning, sharing, making the world a better place.
1: If I were to comment on something from your whole first response there, it kind of goes, back to when you were talking about it was something that I really connected with also when reading this part of your book the idea that the kingdom of God is within you and like connecting with this divine essence and that that's part of all of us and it's kind of developing one's spirituality or religion however every individual decides to conceptualize it it's it's a process that has to be, like, really engaged with through your own experiences. And um, I, I also found it really interesting when you're talking about the the gospel and Jesus asking questions. Because I think that's, like, a really essential part of discovering your own connection to the divine is through reflection and coming to that truth on your own. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh-huh. I was going to say really quick, you mentioned the kingdom of God is within you. Don't forget that the word entheogen literally means awaking the divine within.
1: Yeah. It's so beautiful. (laughs) But I guess that kind of, unless you have anything else to say, that kind of leads into the next question that we have for you, which is you talked about um, being raised Christian, right? Yes. And um, so you had that religion in your upbringing and then through a period of time you identified as atheist and then kind of rekindled your your beliefs through your use with entheogens and um i guess the the question is how have your conceptions of god and your spiritual practice changed compared to your childhood
2: really good question um I'll answer that latter part first. As far as practices go, well, I guess I should give um, a a bit of a forward here. For those who aren't in the know, a few years ago, I was actually arrested for possessing my sacrament, San Isidro, colloquially known as Cubensis mushrooms. I was put through the system, wound up behind bars for about a year. I no longer practice my faith as I once did because I don't wish to potentially subject myself or my loved ones to police brutality or financial burden as a matter of ethics there are too many risks associated with my former practices to, con- to continue to engage in them but um, at the present moment I'm doing without that I am well you you ask how my practice practices have changed uh, from when I was a child compared to now well I definitely see God in different ways I like many do as a child I saw him as that Old uh, grandfatherly figure in the sky with a long beard mm-hmm. sitting on the clouds, and uh, you know, all that jazz. I've redefined what God is over the years. I remember at a certain points when I was uh, studying um, the mechanisms of DNA replication, I was just astounded by the complexity of the processes involved in that. And at the end of the day, it's one really big complex chemical reaction. If you want to, you know, compact it into that sort of idea, but like for a long time, uh, the idea of God as the quote unquote intelligent designer appealed to me. But after listening to a bunch of arguments by Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, it's a very fallacious way of thinking. Essentially it's the, the way he describes it. that's the, uh, the concept of, uh, Paraphrasing here, he says he says that uh, God's power is ever waning mm. with these sorts. Because we eventually find out how certain things happen. Because you know, uh, at a certain points, um, when Newton figured out the laws of physics and could describe how Earth's gravity affected the moon, he couldn't really figure out how moon how uh, Mars's gravity affected the Earth, and essentially said, "Well, that's uh, that was uh, that's all in God's hands." Mm-hmm. Newton sort of gave up and said that, but then one of his students came forward and said well actually if you apply your own uh your own theories a little bit further you can find out how that affects it um and there is a part of me that likes to think that god whatever being they are it has some sort of hand in the processes of life i think the the story within genesis about how earth was created it's a wonderfully poetic metaphor not meant mm-hmm. to be taken literally some people do take it literally but yeah, back to the intelligent design argument. Mm-hmm. Um the world, the universe, life systems have an incredibly complex beauty about them that makes it rather difficult at times to not look at the sorts of things like DNA replication and go, "Hold on, there has to be some other sort of force in here that keeps these processes going forward to allow for cell replication, to allow for whole body metabolism to but at the same time, it can be explained away by science. Um, at, at the present point, the way I see God is not that, you know, figure in the sky or some sort of designer, but more of a force, something akin to, like, not directly akin, but like light energy, sound energy, like a form of energy, a, for, uh, a force, some, and this is all the way it's here. I'm just trying my best here. Um, okay, okay. That, that uh, A force that permeates Every molecule of existence, I guess you could say, um, at the end of the day, when I pray, I occasionally wonder if I'm actually praying to anyone or if I'm just talking to myself, you know, but I understand the value of self-reflection, meditation, taking time for oneself to, you know, think about your life and there's inherent value in prayer, uh, whether or not you're actually talking to some figure in the sky or some force that's within every atom. But just to get back to what I was saying earlier, while we are on a podcast that openly discusses the topic of psychedelics, and while I am a full-throated supporter of those people who use these substances with the proper intention and precautions necessary, I want to remind your audience that each and every single minute that they possess a psychedelic substance, they're placing more than their own freedom on the line. We live in a police state, thought crime Mm -hmm. is real. Big brother's out for you. Don't get ballsy with this stuff. Protect your neck. I just now. don't want others to go through what I went through.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's
2: my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps we'll have time for this later, but I wanted to maybe spend a little bit of time at the end discussing uh, Florida's religious freedom laws. Uh, long Good. story short, though churches like the UDV and Santo Daime faiths were granted legal protection to consume ayahuasca under federal laws, Florida's state-specific religious freedom laws specifically prohibits people such as myself, that is, entheogenic practitioners, from being shielded by the First Amendment's free exercise clause. And given that Florida is the third most populous state in the nation, and that I'm personally aware of dozens of ayahuasca, peyote, psilocybin churches that exist and operate within Florida, some of which are tax-exempt, by the way, <laughs> there's an urgent need to address this unconstitutional law, if it's not addressed, Floridians with spiritual practices such as mine will continue to face prosecution and treated as criminals. Uh, Unfortunately, this was the exact brick wall that I ran up against when I was arrested uh, for possession. Same thing happened to Gustavo Vargas of Tampa. Um, That happened about five or so years ago. He flew into Tampa with a bottle of ayahuasca, and they labeled him as a drug trafficker. But yeah, like I said, I'm no longer practicing as I once did with psilocybin uh, mushrooms. I've compensated though for this uh, lack of engagement with the sacrament by integrating all that I've learned from my practices. Those who have worked with these medicines enough understand that integration is a lifelong process. It isn't just something that's you know it takes a few months then you're over it. It's a lifelong thing. Mm-hmm. I try and take time to meditate each day and consciously remind myself of all that I've learned in my practices. I engage spiritually by reading scripture from a wide variety of global faiths. I read accounts of Christian mystics. I read Gnostic texts. I applaud Christian ministers who offer socially progressive views on social media. I defend faith systems of others and their right to believe as they wish, but not necessarily act as they wish. Uh, once, once, uh, once your rights infringe upon the rights of others, that's where I draw the line. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, In getting on that point, I often rebuke Christians whose behavior often borders on being antichrist. When I see Christians embodying the hate of racism, for example, I take time to approach that matter from uh, a sense that they could perhaps understand and appreciate the greatest joy that could be found in life is expressing your compassion in all that you do. And this, this practice itself has even... Shown itself to be effective at getting people to see uh, my perspective. Uh, these sorts of things, compassion is contagious. I like to say. <laughs> um, at this point in my life, the way my faith expresses itself is in the way I conduct myself on a day-to-day basis. Unfortunately, though, there's no ceremonies. I just have to learn from what I've taken. Uh, I'm reminded of that famous Alan Watts quote. You know uh, about the the psychedelic telephone. You know, uh, <laughs> once you get the message, hang up. For some people. Uh, for some people, they, they assert that it's, uh, that it's an ongoing discourse with these medicines and that they, you know, need to be on the phone all the time. So to speak, Alan Watts would say, well, uh, the biologist does not leave their eye fixed upon the microscope. They go off and report on what they found. For me though, I hear that phone ringing nearly every day and I'm as afraid as hell to pick it up. I can't risk my freedom again, but perhaps things will change one day once I move to a city with decrim measures, uh, there I can be relatively safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, while my current spiritual practices are vastly different from when I was a child, there is one particular practice that's remained unchanged. One sort of belief. I consider prayer to be a private matter, a personal matter. And I highly disfavor taking part within group prayer. For me, prayer is an intimate dialogue between one's self and what one considers to be the spiritual world. That's, you know, a pretty broad definition mm-hmm. Uh by way of contrast i just experience waves of disgust whenever i hear that somebody's about to initiate group prayer i'm like oh god come on really can i just like dip out or something <laughs> 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 because often they'll share beliefs ideas that i don't necessarily agree with and i don't want to take part in that prayer uh which uh, just a quick side tangent um there's a really interesting uh supreme court decision that came out about 2 maybe 3 decades ago is about public prayer offered at public schools even uh, if it was offered by a non-sectarian minister while the majority of the court opposed uh, such practices essentially because it forces others to engage in a religious practice that they might not agree with which I agree with Um, Antonin Scalia who I really hate as a person but he made a fairly good point that I kind of agree with in some way he would say that um, I'm going to have to paraphrase here group prayer, he would say, and I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing, he would say that group prayer is a wonderful way for all of us to gather together to join in worship to the all to the God who we all pray to and seek. That's a fairly wide paraphrasing, but th- there is a part of me that wants to agree with him that, you know, can't we all just, you know, get along? But at the same time, I don't always like being part of those communities because often, They share ideas that I disagree with Uh, to try and wrap this up. uh, Jesus once saw somebody at the temple who was being very vocal about how they were praying, you know, showing all these physical, you know, they were flailing. They were letting everybody know that they were praying. Hmm. And uh, Jesus made a side comment to the, to the disciples saying, uh, if you wish to pray in public, that is exactly what you'll get. You'll get just that you will be praying in public. But if you pray in the privacy of your home, or as you put it in your closet, in secret, that is where you can communicate with God. And that's something that I readily
0: agree with. There's something you mentioned before that I want to, I want to address like the the public prayer, but there's something you mentioned before. You mentioned like the the Florida laws, and it reminded me just, throughout the book, I just got such a, a strong sense of how much like, I said before, a sincere practice of faith this was for you. And throughout this conversation, I get that as well. And so it just really goes to show the hypocrisy of these laws that someone who very clearly has this sincere faith is prevented from practicing it. And for some, something that is so important for mental health and for your ability to make change in the world being able to practice your spirituality is just so important and it it just speaks to to really how important this book was to create this argument that this stuff needs to be addressed because it it is not it's it's unjust to put it yeah
2: there's plenty of discussion within the psychedelic community about the model of medicalization the model of decriminalization there is another avenue for these medicines to be brought to other people and that's through uh the first amendment and At the end of the day, there are certainly lots of people who will clutch their pearls at the thought of a quote unquote schedule one substance being used Mm -hmm. as a sacrament. But the thing is that a lot of these people are are uneducated, they are rather about the topic. Mm -hmm. Um, They have an exclusionary sense of what religious freedom is. And I put a fair bit of energy into trying to get, you know, quote unquote, the other side to accept some of the things I'm saying coming out of a place of a desire for all of us to have the freedom to express ourselves and be the person we want to be so long as that we don't infringe upon the rights of others. I've tried to bring up that issue about Florida's religious freedom laws with the community but no one seems all that interested. I'll be writing an article on it soon just to highlight it. I mean it was it'd be one thing if it was like Rhode Island or something but it's Florida. It's the third most populous state. I know of dozens of churches within the state that you know, are doing this stuff. And the last thing I want to hear about is, you know, them getting busted, you know, especially if they're doing things properly with the right precautions with this group of sincere believers, that they're not just thrill seekers, that they're actually trying to pursue their faith to understand their own selves better and their relationship with God. I think that's a very noble pursuit and people should have the right to do that so long as Again, they don't infringe upon
0: the rights of others. And you kind of mentioned this before where you you talked about the medicalization. I, I have heard from some people that the use of entheogens might be monopolized by pharmaceutical and religious organizations. Do you think this is a real concern in the sense that it's likely to happen?
2: Well, I have no reason to believe that religious organizations will monopolize certain entheogenic sacraments. Yes, the Udove and Santo Daime faiths utilize ayahuasca, but there's no reason to fear that their judicial victories will prevent others from gaining legal protection to consume ayahuasca or other Mm -hmm. entheogens. If anything, it'll help bolster or otherwise support these claims once they're brought before court. As far as pharmaceutical organizations go. I do share the psychedelic community's apprehension about uh, psychedelic patents in the presence of for-profit corporations within the sphere. For me, I see substances like ayahuasca, psilocybin mushrooms, mescaline-bearing cacti, and other substances as being within the public domain. Same goes for standard practices within psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. The idea of some rich investor coming in to scoop up plenty of patents just irks me. Like this Mm -hmm. whole idea that somebody's patenting the soft couch technique, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Like, come on, folks, really? I I especially get irked if they're appropriating from indigenous customs. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, when Jonas Salk and colleagues discovered an effective polio vaccine several decades ago, they actually said to make billions on their discovery. But uh, despite their potential ability to file a patent... It was distributed to people at minimal or no cost. Uh, The same day that the vaccine was actually announced, uh, Jonas Salk was being interviewed by Edward R. Murrow, the famous journalist. He was being asked, uh, who owned the patent? Uh, Well, Jonas Salk said, uh, the people, I would say. There is no patent. Can you patent the sun? Mm -hmm. Uh, Honestly, though, I, I don't feel as informed as I would like to be on this topic. Even after listening to numerous podcasts on the issue of psychedelic patents, I'm still struggling to accept the validity of mm-hmm. claims that psychedelic patents are doing more good than harm in this sphere. I did hear that uh, Paul Stamets happened to patent some uh, some sort of microdosing method uh, to ha- to prevent others from capitalizing on it. That I support. Okay. But in many other areas, though, I'm pretty concerned. Uh, but to get to the bottom of this matter, I'm actually going to be bringing Graham Petrenic onto my podcast, The ultradelic Podcast, in a month or so. He's a patent lawyer who works for psilocybin alpha, a psychedelic news source that regularly updates the community on psychedelic patents. I've got a number of uh, hard-hitting questions I'll be asking him. Perhaps uh, this question can be better answered at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. As an aside, though, if people want to know more about this, I would want to direct them to news sites like Chacruna, C-H-U, excuse me, C-H-A-C-R-U-N-A, psilocybin alpha, and Symposia. P.S. Symposia uh, for up-to-date information on everything related to this
0: emerging trend. Yeah, I definitely look forward to that podcast then.
1: So yeah, actually, I find this very interesting. And you talk about it in your book that you view entheogens and in particular for you in well, in the past, San, San Isidro as being a sacrament. And it's very like there's a ritual in how one would ingest this and with a lot of intention And preparation in order to be like open to that divine connection. So with that, do you feel that there is any space for a recreational use of these substances?
2: Well, while I may view entheogens with a pretty good uh, serving of reverence and respect, I am fully aware that others recreationally use these substances without a substantive understanding about their pharmacological profile, their clinical Mm -hmm. history or their history of sacramental use among indigenous populations. And when we grapple topics such as these, there are a bunch of perspectives I can draw from. Uh, But to answer your question, yes, I do ultimately uh, support such use. The the one thing that effectively persuades me to support such people who use these substances in otherwise non-sacramental or non-therapeutic contexts is that many of these quote-unquote recreational users, are sincerely consuming these substances for personal development. That's the key Mm -hmm. thing here. However, I will respectfully wag my finger to those who misuse Mm -hmm. these substances without considering proper precautions. I feel like that's pretty fair. Mm -hmm. On a personal level, uh, I feel that these substances deserve our respect and shouldn't be used frivolously at any random time. In my own personal history with psilocybin, I quickly realized how important the concepts of intention and mindset and setting are. If people ignore these important concepts, they very well might experience dysphoric responses given just how powerful these psychotropic agents can be. Um, Indigenous populations happen to have strong taboos against recreational use of peyote, ayahuasca, psilocybin mushrooms. Taboo is so extensive that if people planned on consuming these substances, they had to refrain from engaging in consensual sex, eating meat, drinking alcohol, uh, consuming tobacco. In some cases, uh, when people enter into these ceremonies, they need to acknowledge that there is a good possibility that personal transformation is on the horizon. It's not a time to bust out the tequila. You need to be pretty... Sober and well intentioned about this. Uh, having said all this, I'm not arguing that these substances always demand a sobering amount of respect at every single step of the juncture. Within plenty of indigenous circles, uh, song and dance are inherent parts of the entheogenic experience. And though singing and dancing are seen as a form of celebration in the West, mm-hmm. these uh, techniques of ecstasy, a nod to Mercedes Leon, help bring entheogenic practitioners deeper. It's mystical experiences. A lot of people claim that psilocybin and other substances uh, like San Pedro and ayahuasca inherently have recreational potential. But in my own experiences, psilocybin never afforded me a moment of cheap grace. I saw psilocybin for what it is, a medicine, not a recreational drug. For one, the the mushroom-induced nausea is enough to turn anyone's stomach. I yeah. still can't really... Yeah. um, Same goes for peyote, wachuma, ayahuasca. Also, the hyper-awareness of bodily sensations is something that can be overwhelming for a lot of people, myself included. Only by setting an intention and preparing myself for the experience was I actually able to utilize these stomach-turning medicines to their full potential. My one qualm, I would say, with recreational users of psychedelics lies in the fact that they're not using valuable medicines to their full potential. That's not to say that there is no therapeutic value in taking MDMA while you're with a small gathering of friends at your home. Heck, I've even heard about people taking large doses of mescaline and coming back from uh, at Burning Man and reporting transformational experiences. In cases such as those, I applaud their journey and celebrate whatever epiphanies they've learned along the process. If I don't, then I'm only spreading more stigma about these substances, and that's being part of the problem. As much as the thought of people mindlessly consuming psychedelics irks me, I understand that it's ultimately not my right to impose my beliefs on others. People have been recreationally consuming substances since time immemorial, and if I share my beliefs, it isn't going to change much, but hopefully people will perhaps listen to what I have to say about being more conscious about why and how they ingest the substances that they do. Um, What I want people to take away from what I'm saying here is that I support educated, informed adults consuming reasonable doses of these substances within an environment Which minimizes or eliminates potential risks. People often talk about harm reduction, but I don't see psychedelic substances as being inherently harmful. Like virtually every other psychotropic substance, there are risks involved with their use and abuse. And it's important to take that into consideration when consuming these substances. While I feel that there is space for recreational use, I wish to sternly advise that any sort of thrill seekers that engage with these substances will not reliably be afforded. Cheap euphoria. If there is joy to be found in these sorts of experiences, in my opinion, it comes through utilizing these substances for how they were intended. That is healing. More often than not, it takes serious personal reflection to get to that point. Uh, To find joy in these experiences, you have to usually undergo emotional upheavals, uh, catharsis, and find meaning in what can be an otherwise disorienting experience. I have a quote from Houston Smith to uh, wrap up this answer. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna forbids imparting higher knowledge to those who are not ready for it. He goes on to say that India honors higher states of consciousness fully as much as today's psychedelic proponents do, but insists that if they are accessed by persons who are unprepared for them, one of two things will happen. Either, as I have said, the subject will be damaged or the significance of the experience will be missed and the encounter trivialized. Thus, either the subject is damaged or the Dharma is damaged, usually both. So be mindful of what you're doing and why you're doing it. When you go into these experiences, don't just do it because I, s- you think I said so, cause I'm not <laughs> do it because you feel that it's right for you and you, you feel properly educated and prepared.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm mostly in agreement with you. And this comes to what I wanted to say about the, the remarks you made about public prayer. In the sense that when, when I hear public prayer, I know that you likely mean by prayer, you mean something that's very personal about going deeply into the self. But I guess what came to mind was spiritual experiences in public in the sense of like for example i'll get straight to the example is that using psychedelics at like a music festival you know you can classify that as recreational use and yet i i feel that there is space with proper education with proper uh systems in place to make sure that people are safe and that they have uh, some place they can go to at the music festival if things go out of hand and there's people to take care of them that such an experience can be very spiritually opening and you can call this recreational use like oh i'm just going to a festival and getting high but with the proper education that experience can be spiritual i guess is my point and it all comes down to the education we need that with increasing freedom we need proper security to make sure we can exercise those freedoms in a way that makes sure everybody is respected and the self is safe and Like you said, no matter what, people are going to be using substances in a recreational way. And so we need to do what we can to make sure people are safe. That's really what it comes down to. And the the drug war has proven time and time again that it is not working toward that end.
2: Very true. Um, I agree with you that... Just because you're taking these sorts of substances at a festival does not mean that it's inherently recreational. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget that for a very long time and to this day, entheogens are consumed within group settings. And, you know, if you really want to uh, nitpick it, you know, in, in a sense, uh, ayahuasca ceremony is not too different from a music festival. I mean, you're going there, you're, uh, you're likely not wearing as many clothes as you usually do. You're uh, listening to somebody sing for hours on end. Um, you're yeah. uh, <laughs> you just drank something and you're not quite sure what it was.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: But I feel like that's a this is a great way for us to transition into um, potential paradigm for what legality could look like mm-hmm. with these substances. Yeah. Before I can really address the topic of whether or not we should legalize controlled substances, psychedelics, what have you. Your audience at home should know a number of things. I need to set the record straight. The topic of drug abuse has been poisoned by terrible rhetoric by many parties over the centuries. I don't advocate for drugs when I say these things, but I'm simply suggesting that people reevaluate how society should handle this topic. In my opinion, we shouldn't be throwing people into cages simply because they ingest substances other than alcohol, nicotine, sugar, or uh, caffeine. If we want to make progress and begin to leave this chaotic paradigm we found ourselves in, we have to arm ourselves with specific facts. Here's a good one. One, since the inception of President Nixon's war on drugs, the rates of fatal drug overdoses have quintupled. Quintupled. That's perhaps the most damning indictment of Nixon's efforts to eliminate the use of quote-unquote illicit drugs through criminal penalties. We need to convert our national and local drug policies from punitive frameworks into paradigms that see drug abuse for what it is, and it's a medical condition which deserves compassion, not condemnation. We need a system that values the well-being of our society, not a system that seeks to punish others simply because they intentionally shift their consciousness through biochemical means. Two, uh, the vast majority of drug users do not experience substance use disorder, as defined by the DSM. If anybody wants to learn more on this topic, I would gladly recommend Dr. Carl Hart's new book, Drug Use for Grownups. Three, the mass incarceration of drug users has not led to any meaningful progress in terms of lowering the Black market supply, workforce, or revenue. It's just as strong as ever. Society would benefit from drug checking facilities and widespread safe use sites to those who are struggling to wean themselves off of various substances, also by expunging the records of those with minor drug possession charges at the least would create so many employment opportunities for those who have been bogged down for years for, in many cases, a simple possession charge. People forget the viciousness of the prison industrial complex, and we need to break that cycle. Criminal penalties do not deter substance abuse, period. Uh, four, last one. In 1962, this is really interesting, uh, years before the start of the war on drugs, the Supreme Court actually ruled that laws which criminalize the disease of addiction, as they put it, quote, would doubtless universally be thought to be an infliction of cruel and unusual punishment. At the time, California had a law which specifically criminalized the state of being an addict. So, after the appeal came through, six justices gathered together to vehemently oppose this barbarous statute. The purpose of... California's former law, in Justice Douglas's words, was "quote not to cure, but to penalize." He also remarked that California's legislature had drafted a law which ignored the American Medical Association's standpoint that applying criminal sanctions to substance users effectively disrupted their "quote possible treatment and rehabilitation," and therefore should be abolished. Fairly progressive thing to be hearing in 1962, but at the same time, they were a fairly liberal court at the time. Getting back to your question, though, I have mixed feelings about what an ideal drug policy looks like. Organizations like Shakruna and people like Ismail at maps are doing great work to help set up this paradigm. But if you're here to you're here to get my hot take, I guess. So <laughs> for me, decriminalization is a great first step, but however, in many regards, it's not enough. There needs to be greater discussion on the verbiage of these decrim measures in terms of amount of substance. Where are we going to draw the line between a personal amount of psilocybin mushrooms? and enough to elicit trafficking, uh, you know, several kilos. Um, as far as I'm aware, the current decrim measures prevent communities from collectively growing a surplus of mushrooms and other entheogens. So politicians need to recognize that this is a viable way of growing these medicines, actually more viable than to force individuals to privately sort of grow their own stash, so to speak, especially if we want to make strides in ending or rather lessening the severity of the mental health epidemic. We definitely need to begin to make significant strides in providing quality educational content about drugs and their effects on the human body. We can't utilize uh, scare tactics of the past, nor can we perpetuate old stigmas about drug use or continue on without the proper social safety nets that are needed to assist those with detrimental relationships with substances. We really do need to inform people that substance dependence is rooted in a wide variety of psychosocial factors. We need to see substance dependence as a precipitation of factors like poverty, intergenerational trauma, racism, sexism, and many other ills that our society faces. And we need to simultaneously address those as well. Uh, Given the widespread harms of alcohol and tobacco, those who consume those substances have little room to stand on when crying wolf at the psychedelic community. Our community, the psychedelic community, needs to, as a whole, properly educate ourselves on the pharmacological profile of entheogens and the related clinical studies if we are to make any substantive gains while we're on the ground and in the streets talking to people who don't know who have no idea what ayahuasca or peyote is we need to let go of terms like hallucinogen we're in a more informed world so let's call these what they are entheogens psychedelics words and framing matter uh, getting to your question about access, in the 60s, uh, Timothy Leary happened to be testifying at Congress, uh, to the Senate specifically, about his ideas on moving forward with personal LSD use. Obviously, he was a proponent. He suggested that the government issue, um, I'm paraphrasing here, LSD licenses uh, to those who passed some form of test t- determining their ability to properly handle these subjective effects of LSD. And while I initially toyed with this idea, and I enjoyed it, I At this point, I disagree with the idea that there should be stipulations in place for who should and should not have access to these medicines. Given the widespread use, it would be a logistical nightmare to test millions of Americans to figure out whether or not they're responsible enough to handle these substances. Uh, Who would be the one to determine such criteria? What punishments could one expect if they don't have their license when they get busted for possessing a substance? And that brings us back to the same criminalization paradigm that we currently face. We need to let go of these models of who deserves and who does not deserve to imbibe a substance. And that is ultimately a personal matter which should be determined on an individual basis after being given all of the relevant information. As far as legalization goes, though, plenty of people are concerned about the increased corporate presence within the psychedelic space once more and more decrim measures continue to get passed. People are worrying that everything from psilocybin to MDMA will be marketed on billboards Michael Pollan even speculated, so in his recent uh, New York Times op-ed, I share some of those fears myself. I don't want to see Soul 7 market like cannabis. There are plenty of greedy investors looking to make plenty of money within this emerging sphere of psychedelic research. I'm rather concerned that the money-driven practices behind these for-profit corporations will lead to a lack of one, oversight, two, ethics, and three, compassion-driven care. As much as uh, we want to share this modality of healing with the world, I feel like the psychedelic community is hesitant to rush into this. We all want it to be done properly, but not necessarily as quickly as possible. If uh, if we don't put the right amount of intention into this trip, I think we're going to wind up with uh, one challenging experience, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's all that really can be said about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think like you mentioned the the LSD license. And I think that's really just a, a deeper issue in our society is that the idea that we need all of these licenses for different types of behavior is unnecessary when we should be focusing on the kinds of education that can be far more generally applicable in the sense that we should be teaching people in, in schools or whatever it is to simply be responsible people and to be able to make decisions wisely, think critically, etc. And so they can approach these different spheres in intelligent ways, in responsible ways.
2: Unfortunately, though, our educational system, as far as I've experienced, as far as I'm aware, isn't the type of educational system that teaches self-reliance, that teaches Mm -hmm. self-awareness. It's the kind of educational system that teaches you how to fill out the papers and uh, uh, turn the cogs in the machine, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, Takes a fair bit of energy and dedication to break through that model and try and Be a better person.
0: So, we come to our last question for you, which may be quite a a large question to end on. But we wanted to touch on it because the topic of religion comes with a lot of baggage that alienates a lot of secular people. Do you believe that your experiences within theogens have brought you in touch with the absolute or ultimate reality in the sense that these experiences are universal? and could be shared among all people? Or do you believe that what you've experienced is very personal and really must be discovered and defined by each individual?
2: Well, I'd answer your question by saying a little bit of both. There are elements of both in there. While these experiences may be universal in the sense that they could be reliably occasioned mm-hmm. by the ingestion of a certain amount of plant and the subjective effects can, menis- can manifest themselves in so many different ways that virtually every uh, psychedelic experience, mystical experience is unique. There's something rather, something rather unique about the class of psychedelic compounds that allows them to actually help bring subconscious content to the surface so that it could be uh, thought about, analyzed, or even envisioned in the mind's eye during a mystical experience. Um, given that everybody's life circumstances are fairly different, People will report a wide variety of subjective experiences, but if you zoom out to look at trends within these experiences, though, that you can notice some numerous narratives that are present within each of these experiences. Uh, tales of transformation, tales of discorporation, that is, uh, leaving one's body, tales of oneness with the universe, ineffability, access to hidden knowledge, oceanic boundlessness, timelessness, undeniable joy, connection with one's true selves. These are all considered to be common experiences found within traditional mystical experiences, whether or not they are induced by plant and theogens. While some of those aspects are arguably universal, we have to remember something. Mystical experiences are, at least in my opinion, worthless unless they're integrated. Integration is a highly individual process that allows people to not only make sense of their mystical encounters, it allows them to derive deep meaning from what they've experienced. Without intention, you're just somebody who had a mystical experience and hasn't sorted out what all of it means for you. Uh, without discovering what your experience means to you individually, it's simply an unprocessed memory of a powerful experience. Uh, there's a really good quote by Houston Smith. Uh, he was an eminent scholar of religious studies. He um, uh, He's widely quoted without, within psychedelic literature. Bob Jesse loves him too. He's, uh, he's famously quoted as saying that the goal of the spiritual life is not altered states, but altered traits. If your mystical experience changes how you see the world, you have to act in accordance with that vision. There's a really great quote by Brother David Steindelrast, who spoke about this exact thing. He reminded us that mystical experiences don't necessarily precipitate into spiritual lives. It was in the foreword to a book, I believe. Um, he wrote that, uh, instead of saying mystical experience, he said about a primary religious experience. He would say the primary religious experience is no more, though also no less, than a seed for a spiritual life. A genuine encounter with the ultimate does not guarantee a genuine spirituality. The experience may be authentic, but how authentic their spirituality will be depends on what those who have had the experience will do with it. Will they allow it to transform their lives? Will they have determination and patience enough to let the light which they glimpsed for a brief moment gradually penetrate every smallest detail of their days? I like to think that I've come to the place where I've allowed that light to permeate every facet of my life, or at least most, most of the facets, <laughs> far from completely integrating all that I've learned. But I feel that I've made great strides in as far as actively engaging in loving kindness as much as I... Possibly can you know life is hard as a human, um, but yeah. As far as the R word goes, uh, religion certainly has become a triggering word for some people. I certainly understand those sentiments. Uh, organized religion—don't even get me started on organized religion. When I start talking about my faith, I refrain from using the term religion because I understand that doing so will come with a certain amount of baggage thoughts in the mind of my listeners. I prefer to avoid that and use terms like faith, spirituality. Uh, because I see myself as somebody who has unpacked a lot of my own personal baggage associated with my uh, childhood involvement with uh, the Christian church in my youth. Just a final thought here. Religion acts on a sense of, or forces you to act on a sense of dogma. I prefer a model where I can utilize my free will in tandem with the intelligence that I've been gifted to act in accordance with my faith.
0: Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah
1: that is yeah so it's like every individual like your the actual experiences that you have in terms of you, when you use psychedelics the actual like visions and everything that's going to be informed by your experiences and your knowledge in your life and there are some there are some commonalities like you said all the different themes that come up regularly but then it it's really comes down to how you interpret that and bring that into your own life I mean, that's really important
2: integration is the key folks
1: yes exactly yeah
0: so i feel that that's a good place to end the podcast thank you so much for being on
1: thank you will thank you kaylee i had a great time hope i come back can soon
0: absolutely